Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star than zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, well, thank you so much, Michelle, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. The latest developments reported from the 43rd San, Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, or SABCS, and this is part one of a two-part series, and um, so we had another part of this in January as well. Today's program is a, a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations and breast cancer organizations. And today's program is supported by AbbVie, Pfizer, Novartis Oncology, an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko, Inc., and a grant from Genentech. And we really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Um, now, we have many participants on the call today. There are over 400 of you from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have a number of international participants on the program today from Canada, Iraq, Israel, Japan, Laos, Philippines, Portugal, Trinidad, Tobago, United Arab Emirates, and United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well, and we are delighted to have all of you on the call today. Now, before we begin with our first speaker, um, I want to ask you each um, who are live streaming the program to answer just a few questions going forward, just to see what you know coming into the program. It's been very helpful to us in terms of our planning future programs as well. So the first question is, I understand the treatment updates for early stage breast cancer in the context of COVID-19 presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, either yes or no. And the second question is, I understand the treatment updates for early stage breast cancer in the context of COVID-19 presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, yes or no? And the third question is, I understand the treatment updates for metastatic breast cancer in the context of COVID-19 presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, yes or no? Fourth question is, I comprehend breast cancer updates for older people in the context of COVID-19, yes or no? And the fifth question is, I grasp the updates from San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in management treatment, managing treatment side effects, yes or no? The final question coming up soon. <laughs> Last question. 
I understand the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including guidelines to prepare for appointments, yes or no? I want to thank all of you for participating in these questions. Again, it helps us to better understand your knowledge coming into the program. And now I'm going to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Julie Graylow. And Dr. Graylow is the Jill Bennett Endowed Professorship in Breast Cancer, Director, Breast Medical Oncology, University of Washington School of Medicine, Director, Breast Medical Oncology, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Grayler will be addressing an overview of breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, new research presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, treatment updates for early stage breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, and updates in, in breast cancer in younger people, including the management of treatment side effects. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grayler. Thank you, Carolyn, and welcome, everyone. So thrilled to see people participating from all around the world. So let's start with an overview of breast cancer in the context of COVID-19. We've had a lot of discussion. Uh, we've had nine to 10 months to learn more about this virus. We've seen increasing data on what's the risk of getting infected with COVID if you're a cancer patient? What's the risk of having a serious infection, a hospitalization uh, uh, if you're a cancer patient with COVID? And I, th I think what we've seen is that um, the cancer patients that are most affected, and cancer patients do have a somewhat higher risk, are those where either the cancer or its treatment really knock out the immune system. So, um, that's not breast cancer for the most part. Even when you're on chemotherapy, you frequently have good lymphocytes, a reasonable immune system compared to those who are at higher risk, such as those with leukemia, lymphoma, those undergoing a bone marrow transplant, those on some immunotherapies. So I think it's reassuring to see that while in general, when you mix all cancers together, patients who acquire COVID that have cancer might have a somewhat worse outcome. The breast cancer population is not looking bad. And we think that women, for example, on endocrine treatment, hormonal therapies are really not at increased risk. Now, we've learned a lot about how to provide medical care. Uh, during COVID with things like telemedicine. I think Dr. Lintz will go into that a little bit more. Um, with delaying things that can be delayed, not bringing patients in if they don't have to be brought in, but making sure that we're keeping our scans, mammograms, uh, things like that on schedule. We have delayed, um, in some cases, at the height of COVID, some kind of more routine things, but for the things that really impact uh, your outcome, uh, we are trying to keep those on schedule as much as possible. Um, in early stage breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, we sometimes are delaying a surgery, especially if a patient is in a category of other high risk, such as being very elderly or having a lot of other health conditions separate from the cancer that put them at risk. And if the tumor strongly expresses estrogen receptor, 
Um, we definitely have had older patients, some that have other uh, diseases, where we've said, let's put you on some endocrine therapy now and watch the tumor, hopefully keep it in check, and maybe delay the surgery uh, till the future. But um, we did that for a while. Right now, we seem to have plenty of operating room and hospital capacity in Seattle, but there are other parts of the country where that's getting very tight. So that is one strategy. I would strongly encourage women with early-stage breast cancer who are due for a mammogram to try to get that on schedule. Let's not delay. We're predicting that if we are pushing off mammograms, which a lot of that has happened um, in the screening population, that we are going to have later stage of diagnosis and we will, many years down the line, see more deaths due to breast cancer. If you've already had breast cancer, you're at a somewhat higher risk of getting a second breast cancer. So I would encourage you to stay on with your screening mammograms in particular. Now let's get to San Antonio. Every year we hold a big breast cancer symposium in San Antonio, Texas uh, in December this year. Thanks to COVID, it was virtual. We did it online over several days. And um, it didn't stop the science. The science is still happening. Research is still happening and getting presented. So what were some of the highlights? I'll go over some really quickly, and you can ask more questions if you have questions about that. Excuse me. Um, I think one of the the, the papers, one of the uh, presentations that got the most press anyway, that probably did change our practice overnight, was a study called the RX Bonder trial, or S1007. This was a trial looking at using genomic assays in early stage breast cancer patients who had the cancer spread to one to three lymph nodes. So not the lymph node negative and not patients who had a lot more lymph nodes, but a group that had estrogen receptor positive breast cancer where there was already some evidence of spread to a few lymph nodes. And we used a genomic assay called the 21-gene recurrence score or Oncotype DX uh, to see if we could evaluate which patients who had low to intermediate recurrence scores benefited from chemotherapy and which didn't. So when you have a high recurrence score, a recurrence score of 26 or greater, we generally believe that the risk-benefit profile, as you will, that the of, of chemo, you know, falls out favorably, meaning that the benefits of chemo in an otherwise fairly healthy person would outweigh the risks. That's for a very high recurrence score. But what about the intermediate and the low? Where does that balance fall out in terms of when the chemo is, one, more toxic um, you know, than the benefit or when it's not doing anything at all? So what we found was something very interesting, and it was different in women who were postmenopausal when they enrolled in the study compared to women who were premenopausal when they enrolled in the study. Everybody had this genomic assay, the 21-gene recurrence score run, and if your recurrence score was 26 or greater, you did not enter the trial. We recommended chemo. But if it was 25 or less, then we recommended endocrine therapy to everyone. Remember, this was estrogen receptor-positive breast cancer. And we asked these women if they would be agreeable to be randomized to get chemotherapy on top of the endocrine therapy or not. 
and um, many years go by, 5,000-plus patients enroll. And what we saw was if you were postmenopausal when you entered the study, and your recurrence score was in the low to intermediate range, so you qualified for that study. Chemo did not add anything to recurrence um, in this setting. Okay, so the chemotherapy did not reduce recurrence, and so a conclusion would be that postmenopausal women with a low to intermediate recurrence score and one to three involved lymph nodes do not benefit from chemo. That's practice changing. Endocrine therapy alone um, is the recommendation. In the premenopausal population, we saw something different. However, we could not find a recurrence score level below which the premenopausal patient who had one to three involved lymph nodes didn't benefit. Okay? So, um, so we we can't safely say that if you were premenopausal that you can avoid chemo. Now, a big question is, is it really the chemo that's doing anything in those premenopausal women who still have their ovaries functioning, or is it a, the, a very common side effect of chemo, which is ovarian suppression, either a temporary or a permanent menopause, that's actually giving the benefit? So that doesn't mean that all young women with one to three lymph nodes need chemo, but we need to sort out whether it's the chemo or more aggressive endocrine treatment where we shut down the ovaries as well that benefit the, the patient. So more to come there. We had updates at San Antonio in all of the, the three major categories or subtypes of breast cancer, the ER positive, the HER2 positive, and the triple negative. In the ER positive, uh, we saw some very interesting results that we're still um, scratching our heads over about the addition of drugs in a class that we call cell cycle inhibitors or CDK4-6 inhibitors in early stage breast cancer that's estrogen receptor positive uh, to see if we can further reduce recurrences on top of standard treatment. And we saw the results um, uh, from a trial called the Monarch E trial using a cell cycle inhibitor called abemacyclib or Verzenio that looked very promising. These were patients that had um, early stage breast cancer but a high risk of recurrence. And in a, when they received the abemacyclib or Verzenio, it looked like we were seeing reduced recurrences. However, a relative of abemacyclib or Verzenio called palocyclib or Ibrance has had two studies presented, the PALIS study and the Penelope study, and those did not show a benefit for adding these drugs So, in the early stage breast cancer setting to reduce recurrence. So, more to come on that. We're trying to sort out, was it just... Are there differences between these drugs, or was it differences in the patients that were enrolled, or was it the duration of therapy? So we're not quite ready to say that in high-risk patients we should be adding these drugs yet. Um, but very interesting data. More to come. In the HER2-positive setting, we had not a lot of, you know, uh, new, totally brand new data about any drugs, but we did have updates on three drugs that have been approved in the med in uh, breast cancer in the last year or two. 
Um, the first being trastuzumab deruxtecan, otherwise known as NHER2, which is an antibody drug conjugate for HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer that's showing some great results. We saw updates on tucatinib, also called tukisa, and that's an oral HER2 drug that we've seen some profound data in for brain metastases, and we saw some updates on that. And then we saw updates for another HER2 um, oral drug called neratinib, uh, or Neuralink, um, in uh, the metastatic breast cancer setting as well. We also saw some data on a drug that's not yet FDA-approved, another oral HER2 agent called poziotinib, and um, that um, uh, we're interested in seeing uh, where it goes uh, in the future. And in the last category, triple negative breast cancer, we saw an update on uh, an antibody drug conjugate called sazituzumab gubatecan, um, uh, which is um, uh, also, uh, um, also known as Trotal V. And this is, so it's an antibody to something called trope 2 that's found on most triple negative breast cancers and a lot of ER positive, by the way, and other kinds of cancers. And then it's attached to chemo. So the antibody binds to the triple negative breast cancer cell. It gets internalized to chemo, gets delivered inside. And we saw some data looking at some biomarkers predicting benefit, but we didn't really show that there was a group we could rule out that we would eliminate from being eligible to get this um, trotal V the antibody drug conjugate for triple negative. We saw an update on immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, these are the um, immune antibodies. We have two now FDA-approved in metastatic triple negative breast cancer, a subset of that that expresses something called PDL1. And those two that are approved are atezolizumab or Tecentric and pembrolizumab or Keytruda. So we just had some updated data on those as well, and we are looking at those drugs in earlier stage breast cancer too. So lots of exciting data presented. Just a last word on younger um, women with breast cancer and what's unique. We saw a nice presentation on looking at pregnancy after a breast cancer diagnosis that was very reassuring that the babies and the women are healthy. We don't increase recurrence. We don't put the babies at risk. A nice, nice follow-up there. And we're learning that for young women diagnosed with breast cancer that inherited mutations may be uh, present in up to 15 or 20 percent uh, of those patients. So we need to make sure we're looking for inherited mutations that might have led to a breast cancer diagnosis in a young woman. That's really important. So um, that was a whirlwind of information. We'll have time for questions, and I'm going to turn it back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gravo. That was really excellent, really outstanding, really outstanding presentation and setting the context for the program today and covering so many important topics. And of course, there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker um, is Dr. Felipe Lince, and Dr. Lince is going to address breast medical. She she is actually a breast medical oncologist um, at Dana Farber Cancer Institute at Harvard Medical School, and Dr. Lince is going to be addressing treatment updates for metastatic breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, um, updates in the in breast cancer in older people with breast cancer in the context of COVID-19 and San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium updates to manage treatment side effects 
and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including guidelines to prepare for appointments. So it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lindsay. Thank you very much, and thank you for the kind introduction. I feel that Dr. Grelo covered everything that was important, and we could just go straight to the questions. But uh, I, I will use, you know, my minutes to uh, point out some of the uh, uh, of other studies um, that were presented and that to cover some of the things that Caroline asked me to cover. So, starting with treatment updates for metastatic breast cancer in the context of COVID-19. I think that Dr. Grello touched upon that uh, during her talk, that we changed some of the things that we were doing in the setting of COVID-19. And what was that uh, was uh, if we can um, avoid some of the visits to the hospital without compromising uh, the outcomes or how well patients will do, then let's do it. So obviously, oral chemotherapies become, or oral treatments become more attractive because patients did not need to come or do not need to come to the infusion center all the time to, to be treated. So for that reason, I selected two studies that looked at um, oral approaches to, uh, uh, to metastatic breast cancer, and I'll make you some comments on that. So one of those was the CONTESA study that looked at tezataxel. So tezataxel is a potent oral toxin, so a little bit like you might have heard, have heard about it, the paclitaxel, those taxel. But this is a pill, but it's so potent that you, you take a pill only every three weeks. And they compared using tezataxel with a lower dose of capsidabine, that it's, already, that it's also an oral chemotherapy that we commonly use, um, uh, and they compared the combination with capsidabine alone for patients that have hormone receptor negative, uh, I'm sorry, HER2 negative, hormone receptor positive breast cancer who had previously received the taxin. And uh, what they found out was that actually the patients that were treated with the combination did a little bit better than the capsidabine alone, however, they had more treatment discontinuation and some more toxicities with the combination. And we still don't have overall survival data, so to know if patients on one arm lived longer than on the other arm. So um, I think that uh, uh, stay tuned. We are still waiting for more results of this study. But I think that an important message is that we are continuing to see this drug, that it's an oral toxin, an oral chemotherapy to be developed. There are other ongoing trials uh, uh, with these agents. There is the CONTESA trio, that it's a trial that has different cohorts, a complicated study design, but that it's looking at combining these oral chemotherapy with different immunotherapy agents and looking at the role of these oral chemotherapy given alone without uh, any other agents for, uh, in our elderly patients. So I think that in the next year, either in the next one or two years, we'll be hearing more about these agents. And the second uh, uh, drug or study that I wanted to tell you about, and mainly again in the context of COVID, is the PERTAIN trial. So the PERTAIN trial um, uh, was for a different patient population. So the CONTESA trial was for patients 
with the hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. Uh, and this one was also for patients with metastatic disease, but these, ones had, these patients had hormone receptor positive and HER2 positive breast cancer. So we learned years ago um, from the Cleopatra trial that actually for these patients, starting with chemotherapy, pertuzumab and trastuzumab, um, that actually leads to a significant improvement in how long patients live. So on average, patients lived 57.1 months on this study. And the PERTAIN trial uh, was not trying to show, you know, that their approach that I'll tell you in a second is better than what we learned with the Cleopatra trial, but instead they wanted to show is it safe or is it, uh, do we see that it works, you know, to give uh, the, the trastuzumab uh, with or without pertuzumab and uh, hormonal therapy for these patients, so without giving chemotherapy. And they found that uh, uh, um, they treated, let me tell you how many patients they treated here, trying to see if I could uh, give you the specific uh, number. Um, I'll come to that in a second. But to be, uh, patients were randomized, so we flipped the coin and patients either received the pertuzumab, the trastuzumab, and an aromatase inhibitor, so a type of endocrine therapy, or trastuzumab with an aromatase inhibitor alone. And um, uh, so this was roughly 250 patients in total, and they found that this was safe, so they did not find any new safety concerns, and they found that it works, that, there is, that it has some efficacy, um, not, you know, uh, the, 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 the data that we show in terms of progression-free survival and overall survival was not, uh, was not to be compared with Cleopatra that was a large phase three trial that established how we currently treat these patients. But this is certainly an option, either for those patients that are too frail and cannot tolerate chemotherapy, or let's imagine, you know, if we come to a point where it's not safe at all, you know, to come to the hospital or some other reason, uh, this could be a, a, an approach or an option for this patient. So I, I received the results of this trial as additional information that I like to have when I'm treating, you know, my patients that might not be candidates for the, the chemotherapy with pertuzumab and trastuzumab, although that remains our standard of care. Now, moving to my second topic that was updates in breast cancer in older people uh, with breast cancer in the context of COVID-19. So, Dr. Grello uh, um, got the updates on younger people and talked to you about the pregnancy. So uh, um, I'll tell you a little bit about a study that was presented and got a lot of attraction uh, focused on older people. And this was the PRIME2 study. So this was a study, uh, a radiation therapy question, a radiation therapy study that looked at patients that were 65 or older that had hormone receptor positive breast cancer. And um, pretty much they looked, the, their question was if we can um, not undergo radiation therapy uh, for these patients, again, that are older than 65, that underwent breast conserving surgery, and if we can skip radiation without compromising uh, survival rates. So this was. Um, a 10-year survival uh, update, 
I'll recall you that we, we have seen similar results from another study called the CalGB9343. And this study in particular, they enrolled uh, uh, um, more than 13, uh, uh, more than 1,300 patients with non-metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer. All patients were at least 65 years old. Uh, they were receiving their hormone treatments. They, they got their breast conserving surgery. And then patients were randomly assigned either to receive radiation or not receiving radiation after the surgery. And uh, although the recurrence rates uh, uh, were higher for those patients that did not undergo the radiation therapy, they did have similar rates of distant metastasis, that that's what we worry more about it, that that would give someone the diagnosis of stage four disease, and they had very similar overall survival rates as well. So I think that this was uh, good news and something to discuss with, with your radiation uh, oncology doctor uh, when it comes the time to discuss whether these results apply to you or not and whether radiation is, is still an option. So, or not an option, but whether radiation therapy is still indicated in your case, because it might be that you don't fall, you know, specifically into the criteria of this study. So, let's now uh, 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 go to the third point, that it's updates to manage treatment side effects. And I, I chose two abstracts, one that I thought that was very interesting, that was presented uh, by Dr. Jagsey and was the, the um, again, talking about radiation, not as much about managing side effects, but recognition of side effects. And what she did, she's a radiation oncologist at Michigan, what she did was she compared, uh, she and her team, they looked at uh, almost 10,000 patients uh, treated with radiotherapy after uh, the breast-conserving surgery at 29 practices across Michigan enrolled in the Michigan Radiation Oncology Quality Consortium. And she and her colleagues compared patient-reported outcome evaluations with the physician-reported toxicities. And what they found was that symptoms were commonly under-recognized by physicians. So uh, there was a significant discordance be between what patients reported as side effects and, and what physicians reported. And this was mainly in terms of pain, uh, itching, swelling, and fatigue. And what was interesting and very important to think more about this as well was that those mostly affected and most likely to have their symptoms under-recognized were younger patients and black patients, uh, raising the question whether there is a misconception among medical professionals about the pain tolerance of patients based on age and race. And as Dr. Jagzi pointed out, this is important to be continue to be evaluated in future research. And the other uh, and the, the last abstract that I selected that it's focused on side effects had to do with our younger patient population. This was a very interesting uh, uh, abstract that looked at how can we target depressive symptoms, so evidence of depression in younger breast cancer survivors? And they did something that we are not uh, commonly, we are not used to see uh, in these type of studies, that is, uh, they did a, a randomized control trial. So uh, 
patients that were younger than 50 years old, they were randomized to uh, examine, you know, how efficacious two brief interventions that, uh, um, that only lasted six weeks were in improving evidence of depression. And this was mindfulness meditation and survivorship education. And they concluded that uh, these two specific interventions that were specifically designed for uh, younger breast cancer survivors were effective in reducing evidence of depression or symptoms associated with depression. And the in the case of mindfulness, um, there were uh, evidence of improved related symptoms such as fatigue or difficulty with sleeping uh, that were considered to be important for our younger patients' health and well-being after cancer. And I think that's something that the authors pointed out as being important as well is that these were not interventions that each physician or each institution defined on their, way, on their own. These are interventions that are standardized and therefore they have the potential for wide dissemination in a virtual mode, not only in the U.S. but, uh, but uh, to other countries as well once it's culturally adapted. So very promising and encouraging results. Lastly, I was asked as well just to discuss briefly, you know, about the role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. I think that this has been identified by many people, both uh, patients and physicians, as uh, uh, something positive, if there's anything positive about this pandemic, that was, you know, the option of telehealth and telemedicine appointments that unfortunately we had to embrace. Um, I think that uh, uh, this is here to stay, and we can talk a little bit more about it, why, why I think so, even post-pandemic. Um, one thing that I, I usually tell patients is um, uh, how to prepare for your telehealth or telemedicine appointments. Pretty much, you know, the, the type of things that we discuss among ourselves is the same. You have time 101 to talk with your provider, but uh, where there is, where there is a less capacity, is, you know, or, or a decreased uh, um the disadvantage of this type of virtual medicine is really not being able, you know, to count with the physical exam, or there are things that we get just by how you as a patient, you know, uh, come to the room, or uh, if you are walking, if, uh, um, if you need assistance, uh, how is your level of energy. So a lot of information that we get from uh, uh, some sort of body language. So think about it. Think about uh, how you have, if this is a telephone visit, think about how you have been doing overall, your, your level of energy, um, how you have been feeling, things that if we cannot see each other, that things that your face will not tell your provider. And then if you are doing actually a telehealth or a, a virtual visit using video conference platform, so what I tell patients sometimes is, even if I cannot listen to your heart and lungs, I can still see things. So, you know, if you have a rash, if you have some changes in your nails, if you have a little lump or something, you know, you can still show me in the video and we can decide if you need to be seen in person. So um, don't underestimate what you can show either through photos or in the video. 
lastly, I think that's uh, the the last thing that I wanted to to share with you before uh, uh, we go back to Caroline and to Lauren and to the questions is that um, uh, although telehealth has been great in the way that we have been able to avoid visits to the hospital in a unique uh, time and period of our history and therefore not increasing the risk of exposure of patients uh, to getting infected uh, with the virus. I think that it's really important not to delay um, what can affect the, 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 the outcome of our patients. So scans should not be delayed. Uh, if you feel a lump, if you feel anything new, that should not be delayed as well. And feel reassured that even, you know, in all the institutions, even if many of us, some days of the week, we are staying at home and doing the telehealth or the telemedicine appointments, there is always someone from the team available. So don't think that if you, so, or feel reassured that if you need us, there is someone of your team, from your team, that is in the hospital and ready to see you. So feel free to express that as well. If you feel that for what you are going through, it's best to be seen and, and talk to someone and be seen in person because all of us, all of our groups and institutions uh, um, have thought about it and have solutions for that. And with that, thank you very much for your attention, and I'll be happy to answer any questions at the end. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lindsay. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful presentation, lots of good information, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is um, Ms. Lauren Chatelian, and Ms. Chatelian is an oncology social worker, and she's Women and Children's Program Manager at Cancer Care. And Ms. Chatelian will be addressing Cancer Care's free programs and services with a focus on the programs we have for women or for people with uh, with breast cancer, and uh, so it's a great pleasure of mine to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Chatelian. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. Hi, everyone. I'm just going to start by talking a little bit about cancer care overall, and then I'll go into um, some specific services that we offer. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include case management, counseling and support groups, educational workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. To become connected to any of Cancer Care's services, those interested can call Cancer Care's National Hopeline to speak to an oncology social worker. In my role at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and families impacted by a cancer diagnosis. I maintain a clinical concentration in breast cancers and keep current of changing trends and new knowledge that affects our programs and delivery of clinical interventions. There are many aspects of a breast cancer diagnosis that may be addressed throughout psychosocial supportive services, making informed treatment decisions, quality of life concerns, clinical trials, Fertility options and communication with one's medical team are important topics that can be discussed with an oncology social worker. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a supportive network, may help to relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis. It can be beneficial to determine ways to approach these challenges that may surface. 
working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. By calling Cancer Care's Hopeline, one of our social workers can help navigate ways to seek support services. Individuals diagnosed with breast cancer may also choose to supplement existing social networks by joining a support group. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you could encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. At this time, Cancer Care offers national breast cancer support groups online. Our online support groups take place using a password protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time and you can register on our website to join an online support group. On Cancer Care's website, cancercare.org, there's also a wide array of reading material and information related to breast cancer. This includes recorded Connect Education workshops, publications about speaking to your medical team and coping with one's breast cancer diagnosis, as well as stories of help and hope and breast cancer resources. People diagnosed with breast cancer may experience practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment, especially during COVID-19. Unfortunately, financial concerns may be a source of continuing stress. When diagnosed and throughout treatment, it may be helpful to, to discuss any financial concern with your medical providers. It may also be helpful to connect with a social worker, patient navigator, as well as the financial department at the treatment center to see if there are any financial options available to you. Please know that if you are encountering financial hardships, there are organizations that may be able to help you. Cancer Care's case management services are offered nationally to patients, post-treatment survivors, and caregivers affected by cancer. We offer a short-term strength-based approach to case management where the social worker will work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you are interested in learning more about the support services we offer, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. At Cancer Care, our social workers are trained in how a breast cancer diagnosis impacts an individual as well as their loved ones. We are here to offer you support throughout this experience and look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be a part of this very informative program today. Thank you so much for your attention and the opportunity to speak. And now I will go ahead and turn our program back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Chatelian. That was wonderful and a wonderful resources that you identified through Cancer Care. So thank you. And um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Now, before we enter the Q&A, I just have a few more questions to um, ask all of you. Um, and so um, before we enter the Q&A. So again, these are yes-no questions, uh, similar to before. Um, uh, so the first question is, um, as a result of this workshop, I better understand the treatment updates for early stage breast cancer in the context of COVID-19 presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Yes or no? And the next question is, 
As a result of this workshop, I have more information about treatment updates for younger people with breast cancer presented at San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Yes or no? Next question. As a result of this workshop, I am more knowledgeable about treatment updates for metastatic breast cancer in the context of COVID-19 presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, yes or no? And the next question is, as a result of this workshop, I feel more confident in talking with my healthcare team about the updates for older people with breast cancer in the context of COVID-19. Yes or no? I just have two last questions. The next question is, as a result of this workshop, I feel better able to manage treatment side effects based on San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium reports with my healthcare team. Yes or no? And this will be the last question. As a result of this workshop, I am better able to take advantage of telehealth telemedicine appointments with the suggested guidelines to prepare for these appointments, yes or no? Okay, I want to thank you all for participating in the Q&A. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A. I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. I'm going to ask Michelle to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And uh, Michelle. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Okay, we have a question for Dr. Graylow from one of our um, online participants. Um, how to manage the side effects of anastrozole? It is wise to use the drug for early stages of breast cancer? This question, Dr. Graylow. So anastrozole is in a, a, a class of anti-estrogen therapy called the aromatase inhibitors, and there are three drugs in that class, uh, anastrozole, letrozole, and exemestane. And the most common side effects of these drugs, and they're only effective in a postmenopausal setting, are um, kind of some augmentation of menopausal symptoms such as hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness. It can they can cause accelerated bone loss. But the thing that probably bothers patients the most when I hear about complaints is the joint aches that can happen with anastrozole and its relatives. So um, I'm not sure if that's the side effect that's being referred to, but with respect to the joint aches, um, we found that um, Every once in a while, switching to another one of the aromatase inhibitors helps. Um, just it can happen that just different people react to different drugs in different ways. We found that acupuncture, actually, in a randomized uh, controlled trial, helps with aromatase inhibitor uh, joint aches. Um, 
there is um, one drug that we've shown can be effective, uh, duloxetine or Cymbalta, but that I would not recommend that for the majority of people to try to take another drug just to help symptoms from a different drug because all drugs have side effects. We found that being active and um, exercise, for example, can also help. But these effects can be real, and they can cause many patients to want to quit their drugs. But um, I think talking about your symptoms, whichever one of those symptoms I mentioned is what's causing you problems, working with your healthcare team um, on trying to help them or maybe even switch to another drug would be my recommendation. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, another question from one of our online participants, um, Fredata Links. Um, is there any new research on how long a patient should stay on Rimadex. I have been on it for over 10 years. So uh, it's an excellent question. Uh, although for uh, most patients um, we recommend five years, it has been recognized that there are some patients at the higher risk of the cancer coming back for who the 10 years or seven years, there are some studies showing that perhaps the, the seven is as good as 10, you know, uh, but uh, but those are patients that, and that might be the case of the person that is hearing us, that if there was something on the initial cancer um, uh, that, uh, that uh, was suggestive, that the risk of the cancer coming back is higher, and therefore this, this uh, um, uh, uh, this patient is asking us that question. I think that it's always as well a balance to discuss with your uh, physician or your provider uh, how you are tolerating. So uh, Dr. Grelo just brought it up, uh, the major side effects of the aromatase inhibitors. The question might be as well, how is your bone health? Because we know that this can affect your bones. So uh, I think that so far what we have, you know, data is up to 10 years, but that would be a discussion with your provider about balancing the risks of recurrence associated with your disease and uh, the risks of these medications at some point being causing more damage than any good. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, we have a telephone question. Um, Michelle? Our next question comes from Lynn F. Your line is open. Thank you so much. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about the effect of cancer treatment during COVID, but I haven't heard any discussion about whether cancer patients should be getting the vaccination. So obviously it just got FDA approved, but I think it's a hot topic. And if we could have one of you speak on it, that would be great. Thank you. Okay. Dr. Grelo, do you want to address that question? Um, I can start. I'd love to have um, Dr. Lintz, uh join in as well. Um, you know, this is uncharted territory, and uh, we're having lots of dialogue on how we're going to be rolling this out. Um, each state has been given an allocation uh, to start with, and each state is deciding how to distribute it. 
I'm in Washington state. My state may have made different decisions than other states, but my state uh, has decided that the frontline healthcare workers who work with COVID positive patients uh, should be at the beginning and also um, our um, older populations that are in uh, nursing homes, for example, and the providers who work in those facilities should be at the front. So uh, you did not hear me say that uh, the very first set of vaccines uh, is recommended for our cancer patients. Um, I'm not even um, uh, in in the first group uh, because I work in the outpatient setting, not the inpatient setting for the most part. Um, and uh, but. So the the reason, and this dialogue is going to happen and more vaccine will become available, uh, but I think part of the reason that cancer patients per, per se aren't at the very top is because we have many cancer survivors, healthy patients, they might be on some endocrine therapy or something, they're not at major increased risk of getting COVID or getting a bad outcome from COVID. I mean, we don't know how to predict that, but that risk is not different from the general population. And then the other group of cancer patients, um, those that are on active chemo, especially, as I mentioned earlier, the lymphoma, the leukemia patients, the bone marrow transplant patients, those patients, if they have compromised immune systems, might not um, get an immune response from a vaccine. So we have no data, you know, about what a vaccine would even do in a group, especially those cancer patients that have very compromised immune systems. Would the vaccine do anything? Would we be able to amount an immune response? So um, that was a long-winded answer to your question about, um, you know, when will cancer patients you know, rise up on the list. And I think we we just don't know, and we're all struggling with, um, you know, offering, um, you know, those who work head-on, who are exposed to COVID regularly with the very first round, and hopefully we'll have plenty of vaccine in the near future, and we'll be able to um, immunize many more. But, um, Dr. Lynch, do you want to address, you know, when we think we might be kind of out of the woods on this? Yeah, no, I, I think you touched all the very important points. Um, so to to address your your question, your last question now, I think it's uh, uh, we are not there yet, unfortunately. So I think that the great news is that the vaccine is starting to be distributed and people are starting to get vaccinated, but um, it, it's going to take a while until the needed number of the of the uh, people are vaccinated to confer protection to the population. So I think that the important message is, regardless if you are in the first group of being vaccinated or not, um, just don't you know think that life is going to go back to where we were right away. Continue to wear your mask. Continue to uh, uh, use you know uh, follow social. Uh, um, uh, um, uh, the precautions so that you don't infect others and are not, uh, you know, and, and you don't contribute for increased number of cases where right now we are not in a good place or where we want to be. So I think that that's, it's a message of hope, but, you know, not there yet, not tomorrow. This is not going to go away. 
uh, overnight. And then I think, you know, just to add is, and it's something that has been a lot in the social media, is that sometimes we forget, but, you know, people with uh, serious health conditions and people with weakened immune systems were not included in many of the COVID-19 vaccine clinical trials. So, but as the vaccine starts being distributed, not only here, but in other countries, as they become more widely available, we'll also be learning about, you know, the indications, benefits, and side effects on, on patients that are sicker, as Dr. Grelo was mentioning, that uh, we, we, we don't know yet what the benefit of the vaccine will be in these uh, uh, circumstances. So stay tuned. I think that, you know, we'll be learning a lot more in the weeks to come. But until then, you know, I think that it's a message for all of us to remain vigilant and do our part uh, to help end this pandemic. Thank you so much, Dr. Lindsay. Thank you. Thanks. And thank you, Dr. Grelo, as well. This is an excellent question, Lynn, and one to so stay tuned, um, and um, and we'll be hearing much more about this, and probably doing more programs on this too. Um, uh, so, CancerCare has done uh, actually um, we've done five COVID-specific programs. Um, so, the most recent one, in part, addresses some of these issues. You may want to listen to that one. And uh, but it's an excellent question because again, everything is time sensitive, so we get more information. And I think, as Dr. Lindsay has pointed out, we're seeing how this is occurring in different countries as well. So thank you, um, and uh, um, and so we have another question. This one is for Dr. Grelo. Um, so, um, what does my doctor mean when he or she says metastatic breast cancer is incurable but is treatable? Could you comment on that? Sure, I think that's a great question, and. Um... I use that phrase sometimes too, so I think I know. Um, I know what I mean when I say that. So in the year 2020, when uh, cancer has spread beyond the breast and the lymph node areas to sites like the bone, like the liver, like the lungs, like the brain, we generally, with the therapies we have now, would say that the most likely expectation from treatment is not a cure, meaning all the disease goes away, we can't see it, we take you off your treatment and it never comes back. So the definition of cure is, and it never comes back. And we don't know who's cured, even with early stage breast cancer, until we die of something else and it, the cancer hasn't come back. That's the definition of cure. But but we do know in 2020 that there are lots of treatments that are highly effective that majorly prolong the survival of a metastatic patient. And and for many of my older patients, it can extend their survival out to their normal lifespan and beyond. You know, you can coexist and live with bone metastases, for example, maybe on some endocrine treatment where your quality of life is at least reasonable. So, um, so that's what we mean by it's treatable, and we have lots of great treatment options, many of which can, you know, extend how long you live for a long time. Um, but the expectation, the most likely outcome is not cure. Now, are there instances where I think I have some patients in my, my um, metastatic panel? I mean, I've been doing this for more than 25 years now. And are there patients who I think could be cured of their metastatic cancer? Yes, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I have patients with metastatic disease who, um, you know, I've been seeing for over two decades, and I see no evidence of their cancer. And some of them choose to go off treatment. Others choose to stay on maybe some gentler treatments uh, long term. Um, And the, the patients who fall in this category for the most part are those who just have a couple of spots, one spot, a couple of spots of cancer. Um, but I've also seen, you know, other outcomes as well. So do I think someday we will be able to cure, quote-unquote cure, metastatic breast cancer, not just treat it? Yes. Do I think we're currently getting some cures? Yes, except remember my definition is we have to wait till the end of your life to tell you that you were definitely cured. And I think that when we look at from the time of a metastatic diagnosis how long women with breast cancer are living, there was a nice publication a couple of years ago starting way back in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, you know, uh, 2000s out um, uh extending beyond that, that um, really um, survival from metastatic breast cancer was kind of stagnant until the early 90s. And then we started getting more and more agents approved. And in 1992, we had paclitaxel, Taxol approved. And subsequently, more and more drugs are approved. And if you look at the curve in a very nice paper that was published a year or two ago on this, looking at how long women are living now compared to a decade ago, two decades ago, et cetera, you know, even for our triple negative patients with metastatic breast cancer, survival's more than doubled since 1990. How long you live has more than doubled. And it's really going up. And just think, we've had about seven drugs approved by our US FDA for metastatic breast cancer in the last 18 months. You know, things are really accelerating fast. So there's lots of hope out there. Um, But that's what metastatic disease is treatable but not curable means. Excellent. Thank you. And we have one last question. It's a telephone question. uh, Michelle? Our next question comes from Reg G. Your line is open. Hi. Um, I have a two-part question. What is the difference between the genomic assay that was first mentioned by Dr. Graylaw and a 2729 assay? Okay. Thank you for your question. Um Dr. Graylow, could you address that question? Sure. Um, The genomic assay that I referred to, and there are several assays in this category, but the one I referred to, um, the 21 gene recurrence score, or Oncotype DX, is how we evaluate that is we take a piece of the tumor and then uh, look at uh, the features of the tumor. We look at the expression of different genes, and we get a result. So it's based on um, taking a piece of the tissue from the tumor itself and running a bunch of genes. The CA27.29 assay, which looks for the same thing as another tumor marker, the CA15.3 assay, Um, They're looking for a protein called MUC1 that can be shed into the serum, into the blood from rapidly growing cells. So 
that is just looking at a protein that can be found on cancer cells, but it can be found on a lot of our normal tissues as well. Um, and if there's a lot of activity, um, if cells are turning over and irritated, then uh, more of this MUC1 protein can be shed by those cells, which might be cancer cells, but they might be irritated you know, skin cells or, you know, cell, colon cells or cells from the lung or something. Um, so, so the CA2729 is a serum tumor marker, a protein that can be reflective of how fast uh, the, the cells are turning over, dividing, shedding proteins into the blood. And the, uh, the 21 gene recurrence score assay is actually looking at in the tumor itself at expression of different genes. Very very different information, um, but we're increasingly learning more and more about the cancer and um, things that it can shed into the blood, like we can see DNA shed into the blood, and we can sometimes do some sorts of genomic assays in metastatic cancer by finding the tumor's DNA actually circulating in the blood as well, which is uh, called a liquid biopsy. Very interesting, and we're exploring that as well. Excellent. And I think uh, there was a second part to this question as well. Yes, um, and nobody may want to answer it, and that's fine. But um, I live in two places, and I have two oncologists that uh, are extremely different. However, one conflicting thing or one similar thing is neither one particularly wants to do a hands-on breast exam. They both seem to think that the mammogram and, of course, yourself are the only way. Um, is this something new that has come down the pike, or do I need to take a look at this situation? Thank you for that question. That's an important question, uh, Dr. Grable. That will be our last question. Uh, Dr. Grable, could you address that question? Um, so... Uh, for the detection of a breast cancer recurrence or recurrence in the breast, for the detection of a new breast cancer, um, a clinical exam is generally part of the strategy. Um, so I don't know your specific circumstances in my patients who have metastatic uh, breast cancer where I know that there's cancer in the lungs or the liver, for example, um, I am focusing on the disease in those sites. And during the limited time of my visit, I am less focused on finding a new separate breast cancer um, that might be early stage and it's not really the big problem. So I think it kind of depends on the patient situation as well as to am I focusing my exam in other parts of the body because that's where the problem is and that's what I want to know what's going on and um, or is is it an you know, an earlier stage patient where I'm worried about an in-breast recurrence or a second breast cancer. But um, I don't think it's a new thing that uh, at a routine kind of survivorship follow-up visit that we would be excluding um, a breast exam, 
especially especially when you've had a lumpectomy, for example, on one side and we're following the changes of the scarring and maybe the radiation effects and all. I think we want to see what's going on in that breast uh, over time. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to thank um, our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants who've been phenomenal, both in asking questions online and on, on the phone as well. Um, it really helps to um, identify, um, you know, the, cons- the questions that you may have. And um, so I know that we could go on for another hour because there are many more questions in queue. So I do want to, in fairness to all of you, we'd said this would be an hour program, so we've gone a little bit over. But I wanted to say that actually um, – If you've asked a question today or if you have a question that you didn't get to ask, in either case, we ask you to take your question back to your healthcare team. And if you were listening and heard a question that you hadn't thought of asking your healthcare team or want to ask them, go back to your healthcare team. They obviously know you the best and they're a a good group for you. And we hope that as a result of the program that you have more information as you go to your healthcare team with questions and also that you feel more confident in asking questions as you've seen our speakers today are very eager and and very willing to answer your questions. So I think that that's something that's very important in that relationship with your healthcare team. So so please do, we don't want to at any time sidestep your healthcare team at all. Um, After today's program, you will all be getting a SurveyMonkey evaluation, but in addition to that, there will be all the resources that were mentioned during the program or some that we actually um, are thinking of that we want you to have as well, just based on the discussions today. Um, And also, uh, what you're hearing today is that there's been tremendous uh, progress in Uh, in the treatment of breast cancer, and there's more to come. We actually have a part two of this program in January, so you'll be getting information about that as well um, because this was a a, a very large conference, so there's more information to come. Um, And also for those of you who wish to take advantage of the services of cancer care, um, please do contact us. Um, Our oncology social workers are here to help you. Um, And also as we enter this time of... uh, holiday, it's a holiday time, but not the same, it's not the same holiday for everybody, and everyone doesn't necessarily share the holiday, but nevertheless, we do ask all of you, nevertheless, um, I think it's come up during the program that we're still all wearing masks, social distancing, all those things are important. Um, We definitely want you all to be safe, and we want you to, um, we know that this has been very challenging, feeling alone, and that's why there are so many um, support programs out there, online support groups and groups for you um, to participate in and activities so that you um, can feel connected to others who um, are sharing your concerns, both as people living with uh, breast cancer, of any type of cancer, or caregivers as well. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.